You're in tune to the Fusebox Radio Broadcast. Uh, turn the music up inside my session. These folks gotta hear my message. Bringing balanced black radio to the masses. All right, everybody. One, two, one, two. What's going on? This is DJ Fusion of the syndicated Fusebox Radio Broadcast. Bringing the balance back to black radio each and every single week, whether it's via your favorite podcast app, internet radio station, or FM radio station. We got some extra special bonus content this week. During the past weekend, I was over at the first annual Capital Canna Show, which was a cannabis convention essentially in D.C. For those who are overseas, basically we're in a weird place in the United States with marijuana as of right now in terms of its legality on a recreational and or medical basis. And in the current home area of the Fuse Bug Radio Broadcast, which is the Washington, D.C. metro area, various states have medical passings, but it's kind of hard to get into various stuff and all of that. And there's at most a decriminalization mode in D.C., and Maryland, where you can have a certain amount for your recreational use and not get punished for it, even though within all of these states, if the feds really are beat to get at you, they can. And also in D.C. and Maryland, you can't necessarily just like set up a shop and be like, hey, I'm selling weed over here, like perhaps in Colorado and Washington State. So there, there's a lot of interesting legality stuff going on in that realm with um the herb and all that right now anyway i went to this convention and folks can definitely check out pictures a little write-up i did about it over at our official blog site blackradioisback.com and i was able to get audio from two of the presenters to share with y'all as bonus content this week the first audio that's going to be rolling out is going to be from Neil Franklin from his speech slash seminar. And to give a brief rundown of who he is, Neil Franklin has a 33-year career as a policeman, but essentially through his time serving with the Maryland PD for over 23 years, including as an undercover narcotics agent and trainer for law enforcement, he sat back and essentially looked at stuff and was like, yo, this entire war on drugs thing is really not cool and it's really not working. And those of us within law enforcement, as well as on the outside, need to change that regardless of your political affiliation or other types of stuff. So he is now the executive director of LEAP, which is Law Enforcement Against Prohibition of things such as um, marijuana and um, some other various drugs. So the audio you're going to hear first off by our podcast listener audience is going to be from his speech. So we're going to drop that on y'all right now. As always, you can check out the Fusebox Radio broadcast via your favorite podcast app or server of choice. So iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and all the other good spots where you can grab up our podcast. I'm definitely go ahead and feel free to do so. If you like what we're doing, please give us some ratings and please recommend us to your people. We really appreciate Every single new ear that grabs us up, downloads us, streams us, all that good stuff. Again, our official blog site is blackradiowithback.com. And yeah, we're going to keep it moving. So sit back and listen to this audio from Neil Franklin during the Capital Canna Show. And enjoy. All right. Peace.
got my drug. That pain, can't live without it. So, great turnout. The organizers, from what I see, have done a great job with this conference. So, uh, I'd like to give them a hand. It looks like they've overdone themselves. So, Brandon mentioned something about the policy. And uh, I think the policy is a little screwed up. Probably a lot. I'm going to talk a little bit about our organization, just a little bit, just so I know there's probably some people in here who don't know about us, law enforcement against prohibition. Then I'll br briefly touch on my transformation. Coming from being a police officer who was working undercover and commanding drug task forces, arresting a lot of people in the state of Maryland to this place where I am now. And this very special space. As a matter of fact, you guys look quite relaxed. Are you? I hope you are. You're just like chilling. And mind if I come into this space with you? I'm, I'm coming out of this. <laughs> oh, you want to let me roam? Yeah. How's this? Okay, yeah. My, my mother always told me that I had a problem with staying in one, one space. And uh, I, just, I, just, I just like to move. I just like to move. So let's get started. We don't have a lot of time. I have a lot of information, a lot of things to talk about. And at the end, I want to create a space also so that we can have some dialogue. Hopefully you'll have some questions that we can talk a little bit about some of these things. I'm going to take this from a from a place of cannabis to a broader place. I'm going to talk more about the overall war on drugs. Yeah, I'm going to talk about some things regarding cannabis and some specifics there. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, we've really got to do something to end the war on drugs, which is really a war on people. It is never about being a war on drugs. Think about it. You can't have a war on an inanimate object. This microphone. You can't have a war on a microphone. It's all about the environment in which you use it. I can either turn this microphone into something that people would fear, something hurtful, depending upon the words that I speak through it. Or I can lift people up, I can, I can bring people to a better space. If I were to use this microphone to, to talk badly about people, to belittle you, to spew hate, Maybe there are some people who want to prohibit microphones. With drugs, it's all about the environment in which we use them. It either be a good environment or a not so good environment. But we'll talk a little bit about that. Law enforcement against prohibition, this is who we are. We're police officers, judges, 
prosecutors, corrections officials, federal agents. And this is just a snapshot of some of those folks. Anyone that had anything to do with arresting people, first contact as it relates to drug enforcement, through our court system, prosecutors, judges, into incarceration, our prisons, and all the way through to parole and probation. That's who we are. We advocate not just for an end to the war on drugs, because that can mean different things to different people. Put it simply, to end the prohibition of all drugs. All drugs. Now, I know some of you here are probably saying, well, I, I can kind of get what cannabis. You know, I, I, I can understand weed, but heroin? Cocaine, meth, yeah, all drugs, and you'll see why as we move through this. We're an international organization. We have, we're headquartered here in the United States. We have branches in six other countries, Brazil, Canada, a couple in, in, in Europe, Australia, Costa Rica, and we're continuing to grow. We have thousands upon thousands of members. Thirty-four years in law enforcement for me. Twenty-three with the Maryland State Police. Right out of the academy, in 1980, I started working on the cover. Prince George's County, Southern Maryland, for those of you that are local. And I arrested a lot of people. You know, back then, it was about, let's, let's, let's find out who's bringing drugs into the country. Let's find out who's setting up these very powerful organizations in our neighborhoods. And that's who we want to get. It sounds good. But we ended up arresting more people who were just users. And most of those people that we arrested were using cannabis. They weren't using heroin, they weren't using cocaine, they weren't using those so-called harder drugs. And there came a time, you know, when we were trying to go after, as we put it, the, the drug kingpins, but there came a, came a time when we said, you know what? Let's step it up a little bit with the user population. Let's go after the demand side. And that's what we did. And the prison population in this country skyrocketed. Has, has anyone in here read Michelle Alexander's book and you've been from? If you haven't, you need to read that book. It's about mass incarceration. It's about, she talks about the war on drugs. And she talks about, at the beginning of this period of the last four to five decades, when we started the so-called war on drugs, and Richard Nixon coined that phrase back in the 1970s, Look at the graph of our prison population in this country. It is mind-boggling. And today, this country, which is only 5% of the world's population, has 25% of the world's prisons. It's all about the war on drugs, the war on people. So I was part of this. After I was working on recovery, I was eventually promoted and I became in charge of drug task forces. 
The latter part of my career with the Railroad State Police, I had nine drug task forces at one time under my control. And the entire Eastern Shore Harper and Cecil Towns. But we continued. We continued on this hamster wheel blocking people up. So what happened to me? Because I was conditioned to believe that this was the thing to do, the way to go. I was conditioned to believe that we could have a drug-free society. Is there anyone here who believes that we can have a drug-free society? What's interesting, what's interesting is that the people who really advocate for that nonsense, I didn't think it was nonsense back then, really believe it. Until they have a conversation with me or one of our speakers. And then he realized it's impossible because they would also be in a world of hurt with that in a drug-free society. In the year 2000, right after I retired from Maryland State Police and was working for Baltimore City as a head of training, there's a good friend of mine who was working undercover for the Maryland State Police. His name was Ed Tozer. And he was buying cocaine. He was working with the FBI here in Washington, D.C., buying cocaine from the mid-level drug dealer. On October 30th, year 2000, making the final buy of cocaine from this drug dealer before we would take him down and then try to work our way up. That drug dealer decided that this was the day he was going to rip Ed Tosley off. He didn't know it was a cop. Another drug, drug dealer. You see, in that, in that game of cat and mouse, it's a very dangerous place. And when you decide you're going to rip off another drug dealer, you know what you've done for. See, that's what we're experiencing in Baltimore. That's what we're experiencing in Chicago with these high murder rates. You know, it is, it is these corner crews and these local gangs that are feuding with one another. Carrying guns is a necessity of that business because it's an illegal business. Think about alcohol prohibition of the 1920s. I see some of you in here may have been actually part of that. Richard, right? Not quite. Okay, you're close. But think about alcohol prohibition in the 1920s. I was in Chicago yesterday. Al Capone. St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Drive-by shootings hanging off the side of these older model cars with Thompson submachine guns. Today, it's AK-47, MAC-10. Running gun battles, the same thing. All because we took something that people like to use, a drug, made it illegal, and drove it underground. And what happens when you do that? Criminal organizations take control of it, and the way that they do that is with fear, murder, intimidation. That's what happened at Ed Chosen. On that night, October 30th, when that guy came back to the car where Ed was waiting, put a gun to his head, and blew his brains out. It caused me to stop for a moment, to start thinking about things differently. It, it, it got me to start thinking about the violence that I, I had seen before in this trade. Then I realized something as time went on. You see, I didn't just turn on a dime and change my perspective on a dime. It took time. 
and took some deprogramming. Two years later, something else that helped with that deprogramming was this. This is a home in East Baltimore, one of the many real homes. And if you look closely, you can see at the top windows where it's porched. This home was on fire. In this home used to live a family of seven people. A mother, father, and five kids. It's awesome. On that corner, that was a favorite corner for a drug dealer and his crew. High volume traffic, good profit. The mother Angela was doing what we want good citizens to do, work with the police, identify these drug dealers. Even let us use your home to do surveillance sometimes. She was working with the police to get that drug dealer and his, and his crew off of their corner. It's what we've done time and time and time and time again. All you're doing is creating job openings for other folks. But he got pissed off, realized who was working with the police and decided to send a message, not just to her, but to the entire neighborhood. He don't mess with my cash. And he set their home on fire one night. Seven people killed one night by one drug dealer, not because people use drugs, but because we have a policy of prohibiting the use of drugs, which drives it underground into a criminal marketplace. And people fight over the territory which is selling. Every day around, as we sit here and talk right now, in many cities around this country, we're having a shootout over drug territory. That really started my journey, and you'll hear more about that, my journey, as, as we move through. So let's, let's get going. So we're here today about cannabis, right? Who wants to get in? Who's either in or wants to get into the cannabis business? Show of hands. Okay. Good. 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 And I'm, gonna, I'm supposed to talk a little bit about, you know, where we are now as it relates to cannabis and the, the policy and where we're moving across the country and even around the globe. But let's take just a quick look at where we used to be. Let's go back to the time of, of alcohol prohibition, right? This is a newspaper article. Evil Mexican plant that drives you insane. Anybody in here smoke weed? I thought you guys were really insane to me. <laughs> Randolph Hearst owned most of the newspapers across the country. You see, this was the internet, internet of the 1920s, 1930s. We didn't have smartphones, you know, we didn't have computers. This is how most people got their information. And when you have something like that printed on yesterday's internet, you know what, if it's on the internet, it's got to be true. Same thing with the newspapers back then. People believe this stuff. Beware. Young and old people, all walks of life. This may be handed to you by a friendly stranger. I think this was the beginning of stranger danger or whatever that was. Let's move on. And, and article after article, very graphic, in your newspapers across the country. The brainwashing, mindset, 
the devil's harvest. You know, and and the black side of swing. You know, now we, we start talking about groups of people. You see, it's always been about social control. The first law, one of the first laws, going back to the late 1800s, California was about opium and the Chinese. Okay, the first law only prohibited the Chinese from possessing opium. Not whites. This guy, Harry J. Ansley. Familiar with some of you guys? Yeah. Okay, so this is really our first drug dog, going back to 1930 or so. And, and these are some of his quotes. And for some of you that can't read it, I'll just read a couple of them. There are 100,000 total marijuana smokers in the U.S., most are Negroes, Hispanics, Filipinos, and entertainers. Their satanic music, jazz, and swing result from marijuana use. The marijuana causes white women to seek sexual relationships with Negroes, entertainers, and any other. I don't know, the white women in here, what do you think? I'm, don't feel like they answer that. I know I'm going to get myself in trouble before it's, it's over. The primary reason that alcohol marijuana is its effect upon the degenerate races. Now, this was the guy that was pretty much given the key to drug policy in this country. And it, and it went all the way to the United Nations. And today we have drug treaties that our member states around the globe are required to comply with to keep prohibition in place. You see, this isn't just a United States issue, this is a global issue, and that's why we are a global organization. You smoke a joint and you're likely to kill your brother. I don't know, I didn't need a joint to have that going for my brother. I'm just kidding. We had, we had good time. This is actually my pastor now, so I can't say too much about it. <laughs> so, just wanted to create a snapshot of this guy, and, and of course, he was, he, was, he was close friends with Randolph Hearst, the newspaper guy. So he pretty much got printed whatever he wanted to get printed. And so begins the journey. You see, it didn't start with Richard Nixon, but we're going back a hundred years. hundred years. And then from there it went to the cocaine and the heroin and all the other drugs that you moved forward. So, just wanted to, to bring that up. At the same time, someone made this quote. So, late 20s, 19, in the late 20s, someone made this quote. The stringent laws, vigorous prosecution, and the imprisonment of addicts and peddlers have proved not only useless and enormously expensive as a means of correcting this evil, but they are also unjustifiably and unbelievably cruel in their application to the unfortunate drug victims. Repression has driven this vice underground and produced the narcotic smugglers and supply agents who have grown wealthy out of this evil practice and who, by devious methods, have stimulated the traffic in drugs. And finally, not the least of the evils associated with repression, the helpless addict has been forced to resort to crime in order to get the money for the drug which is absolutely indispensable for his comfortable existence. Does anyone know who made this quote? It's this guy, August Ballmer. 
He did what I used to do. He was a police officer. He wasn't just a police officer. He was the chief of police at Berkeley, California at one time. He was the head of the International Association of Chiefs of Police at one time. This was a leader in law enforcement back in the 1920s and 30s. Saying this. It's a shame we weren't listening to our cops back then. And we are listening to them now in maintaining these policies, these failed policies of drug prohibition. If we had listened to this guy, we wouldn't be in the place we are today. And he also went further to, to say, he went on to say, is that this needs to be handled by healthcare practitioners. This, this thing of addiction and problematic drug use, healthcare practitioners. Kind of like where we're headed now, right? We're headed that way now. We believe it's a health issue now that people are dying outside of our urban centers at high rates for opiate use. It's no longer, it's no longer black, browns, and poor people, poor whites in our cities, and in our in, in the poor Appalachian Mountain region, West Virginia, and so on. It's no longer poor people dying at alarming alarming rates. Now gated America is feeling. So now it's a health issue. So I just wanted to mention him. These policies of prohibition have done damage around the world. And again, this is this is the reason that I started to make this turn. This is, it is about drug prohibition murder. Just a quick snapshot of a global issue of these murders. Venezuela, 160,000 murders since 2000. Mexico, 100,000 plus since 2004. Brazil, where we have a branch, a very effective branch of our organization, 53,000 murders per year by these drug gangs and crude cartels. 53,000 a year. We just realized something here else in the United States, right, regarding this conflict conflict between police and community because of things like the war on drugs, where we initially thought that the police were responsible for 400 deaths every year, and now we realize it's over a thousand, right? Can we guess how many people are killed by police in Brazil every year? Around 7,000. And it's, they're fighting this thing called prohibition. In context, 5,000 Iraqis were killed in 2009 in war over 9-11. And we thought that was the truth. So, forty percent of the 437,000 global murders committed in 2012 took place in the Americas. And you wonder why kids are riding the train of death through Central America to get to our Mexican border, to cross over into the United States, risking life and limb to do that. You wonder why we have an immigration problem at our southern border. Central America, Mexico, the northern states of Mexico, it's not the safe place to be, folks. You think we have it bad in some of our urban communities? We all travel down through Central America. And when you had that type of carnage in Mexico, Companies don't invest 
they're not going to risk. You see, it's all about the dollar for them. So if they can't make a dollar, they're not going to open up a factory or open up a business. And so people have to come north looking for work. And many of these people are also forced to come north to work for the cartel. And their families are being held hostage back in Mexico and other countries. And if any of you are squeamish, I just want to, I'm a visual person. And I, and I think sometimes you have to be visual. So if you're squeamish, you can look away now. But this is what we're talking about. This is somebody's son. Maybe somebody's father, brother. This is every single day. Below our border. And these are miles, folks. These are miles. I'm not showing any beheadings. People hanging from bridges. It's miles. Another thing that got me after I read Michelle Alexander's book was mass incarceration. I didn't have a clue. Even when I started this journey, I didn't have a clue about mass incarceration. I don't think many people did. We weren't really counting the numbers. We weren't really paying attention. We were sleeping the wheel this time. And now we find ourselves in a very, very bad place. And it not only affects adults, but children are really catching it. Now, I know you can't read this, and I'll mention a couple of these, and we, I know some of you have heard about the school to prison pipeline, but I just wanted to touch on this real quick because it, goes, it is about our kids. It is about our kids. So on the left-hand side, you know, when it, when it, where it says school to prison pipeline, just real quick, the top one, 40% students expelled from school each year are black, and this is, We've got some serious diversity uh, disparity issues as it relates to how we were fighting this war on drugs. Again, black, brown, and poor communities. That's where we, the police, do most of the damage by far. And for a number of reasons, yes, the, the underground market causes the violence, absolutely. But it's even beyond that. It's because there is no political or financial power within those communities. These people can't take that. They can't. 70% of students involved in school arrest are referred to law enforcement. That, that are referred to law enforcement are black and Latino. 70% of those arrests, black and Latino. On the right side, we're talking about foster care, and I think that that's important. With those numbers you see there about, on the right side, with foster care, you know, 50% of children in the foster care system are black and Latino. You know, and, and the numbers going down. But the reason that is important is because when you link the war on drugs to incarceration, and when you look at the data of blacks who are being incarcerated because of the war on drugs, what that does to a family, it decimates the black family. And now, Latinos are catching up with us. We're decimating the Latino black. And when you do that, we end up with foster children. And when you end up with foster children, these are the numbers. 70% of inmates in California state prisons former foster care kids. So I just thought I'd mention that. We talked about the budget in this country. We talk about health care for everyone. 
and how it's so important. You know, since Richard Nixon started the war on drugs, we're somewhere between 1.3 and 1.5 trillion dollars spent on cops, courtrooms, and prisons. And that's low ball, low ball estimate. What's important to me also is policing community. And the police, we're no longer as effective as we used to be in solving the crime that is important to citizens. Murder, rape, robbery, aggravated assault. In 2006, we're solving six out of 10 murders nationally on average. Six out of 10, six out of 10. Before the war on drugs, 1970, that was nine out of 10. And those rates were similar for rapes. Rapes were only solving four out of 10 right now. And on and so on with robbery. So what does that really mean? It means that unsolved are 40% of our murders, 60% of our rapes and arsons, 75% of robberies, and 90% of burglaries go unsolved because we have been, we are misdirected. We, we are not focused where we need to be as a law enforcement community on the crimes that are really important to people. In Baltimore City, thank you. You In Baltimore City, my hometown, today, three out of 10 murders get solved. Seven go unsolved. That's a huge problem. Just a little challenge here, and, and I'm probably, I mean, there's, there's really so much to talk about, but I'm gonna open it up for questions here real soon, but I just wanna, wanna point something out real quick. So, this real quick, and I, I was just doing a comparison, talking about policing principles versus, versus prohibition policies, you know, just talking about some of the things when you analyze it, and so, you know, just asking the questions. The money that we've spent, the effort that we put into the war on drugs, and all this work that we're doing, has it stopped the flow of drugs? No. Has it reduced manufacturing or importation? No. As a matter of fact, it's gotten worse, folks, if you look at the data. Has it at least reduced the purity levels? No. Heroin's almost 100% pure today. And, and when I was working undercover, good dose of heroin was somewhere between three and nine percent. In Philly today, you can get it at eighty percent, easy. Addiction rates continue to rise. I mean, just look at what we're dealing now, dealing with now with opiates. And most of those opiate issues we're having are with pharmaceutical painkillers, by the way, not heroin. HIV in many places continues to rise, but hopefully, I mean, if, as long as we continue progressing with needle exchange programs, I, we'll keep working on that, but we're not gonna really make headway until we change our policies completely. And overdose deaths in some states today, we're having a 300% increase. Law enforcement costs, I mentioned that already, continue to go up. Law enforcement focus, which I just talked about. Violent crime. And I'm just touching upon a couple, I'm not getting into civil asset forfeiture, I'm not getting into some of the police corruption that we have, and so on, murders, robberies, burglaries, rapes, and so on. At the end of the day, again, you can't have a drug-free society, it just isn't possible. 
failure, failure, failure as far as the war on drugs and drug prohibition. I'm going to end with this. I have much more to talk about, and we'll maybe bring some of that out on Q&A for a couple of minutes. But here's a big issue that I had. As we talk about the militarization of policing, as we've seen in purpose, a lot of people, we, they, they relate that to and blame that on the war on terror. You're wrong. We have to keep an eye on the war on terror, folks. We do. With our rights are being eroded every day. <laughs> that literally could be the next war on drugs if we're not careful. But militarization did not start because of the war on terror. Anyone old enough to, to recognize these two guys? Adam Tell, right, Adam Twelve. One of the first police shows. So when and why did this, and when I say when when I say this, I'm talking about the uniforms. The uniforms that they're wearing. When and why did this become this? It's the war on drugs, folks. That's when we started using our SWAT teams at a very high rate to serve certain us for weed, cocaine, heroin. And it has led to this, to this, to this. $4.3 billion later, and it just continues to go and go and go and go. Oh, and uh, just a little bit of levity. Uh, so, the one guy is saying to his friend as they're walking down the sidewalk, he says, uh, do you think the police are over-militarized? And the other guy says, well, that's a crossing guard. And believe me, folks, um, we are already there. We are already there. And talking about our SWAT raids, which were very few, far between when I was working undercover today, 50,000 annual SWAT raids occur a year in this country. And it's something that we're definitely going to have to do something about. As we open it up, we have about 10 minutes left for Q&A. We'll probably end up talking a little bit about civil rights, constitutional rights, and human rights. And that's literally what we're dealing with as it relates to the war on drugs. As we chip away at our human rights, mass incarceration, the violence that we're seeing around the globe and around the world, constitutional rights, and civil rights. But right now, I want to open it up for Q&A, and then after the Q&A, when we have about one minute left, I'm just going to run down some things that will, that I'm going to ask of you, all of these future cannabis business owners. And just remember one thing, folks. It's not a new industry. It's being transferred. It's being transferred from the people who are making money illegally, many to put food on their tables, pay heating bills, to pay rent. Like in my neighborhood back in Baltimore, it's being transferred from that community 
to the boardroom. The following is being transferred to the big business. And that income from those communities will need to be replaced. The number one employer in cities like Baltimore and Chicago, despite what you may believe, it's not Walmart. It's the drug trade. It brings more money into those families, like it or not, than any other single business. Keep that in mind. Questions? Yes, sir. Okay, so he's asking about civil forfeiture and the money that law enforcement gets from taking your property and using it in, in fighting crime and so on. Um, we refer to that as incentivized policing. And with that money, the billions that we get over the years that comes to policing when we take your property and don't even have to charge you with a crime in many cases, a lot of that goes back into drug enforcement. A lot of that pays salaries, it pays overtime to keep, to keep it going, to keep it going. Um, we're trying to change those policies across the country. There's been a little bit of change at the federal level, but we're trying to do it state by state. And for any money that comes in, what we're trying to do is change the policy so that that money goes to things like violence against women. It goes to, uh, you know, fighting violent crime, not drug crime, crimes against our children. We have so many children missing in this country, and we're just not putting forth the effort. We don't have the time to do it. So that's what we're, that's kind of like a sample of the shift that we're trying to make. But we're really trying to end civil forfeiture altogether and leave it as criminal forfeiture. So do we have to arrest you, charge you, convict you? Yes. I'm not sure how many police officers there are in this country, but I'm sure there's many who are pro-cannabis who do not want to arrest uh, people for possession. But they're also sworn to uphold the law. So of course, by the job to do what they don't want to do. So you're a police officer, how do you reconcile this concept? It's very difficult. When you graduate from the academy as a police officer, you take an oath. And the most important part of that oath is to uphold the two constitutions, the Constitution of your state and the Constitution of the United States. And the if we were to really do that, pay attention to the Constitution of the United States as we go about policing, the war on drugs makes no sense. It makes no sense, it wouldn't even happen. And I just want to refer quick to something here. Just close your eyes so you don't get dizzy looking at this. But I was eventually, I would talk about this guy. This guy is Robert Peel. When you get a chance, Google the Peelian principles of policing, the nine Peelian principles. And they talk about things such as preventing crime and disorder. This first principle talks about the militarization of policing. 
that the police are an exception. We're, we're supposed to be that group of folks from the community that deal with crime so that the military doesn't get involved. That's what the first principle speaks about, military force. You know, and recognizing our powers and making sure that we do things appropriately. And I just want to point out number seven, which says that the police are the community and the community are the police. It doesn't seem like that today. We have a case to go So many of our police officers are really having a hard time. Those who take their oath seriously are having a hard time performing those duties because of what we should be doing. Yes, ma'am. And we have just a couple minutes left, so quick question. Okay, quick question. Um, do you think that um, when marijuana becomes legal in all 50 states, this will help shut down some of those businesses who will for profit on the stock market like PCA and, and corrections? Yeah, um, very good question. If we end the war on drugs, we end this, which I just flipped by real quick. Slave labor. So, mass incarceration, our prison industry today, much of which is privatized, literally slave labor. And around here, around that center picture, you see things like factories, sweatshops, you know, 19 cents per hour, no benefits, no medical, no vacations, IBM, Disney, uh, um, Microsoft, and many of these companies that actually increase their profits through prison labor, slave labor. So, absolutely. So, we've got, I'm going to take one more question and then I'll close it out. With the correlation between hyper of the police force and the correlation with the military industrial complex and, and Wall Street ultimately, what presidential candidate would you most likely all right, all right, all right. You don't give me a couple. First of all, <laughs> what I'm about to say in comment has nothing to do with our organization, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. I'm not speaking to them. We are a nonpartisan organization. We have folks all the way on the right, folks all the way on the left, and everybody in between. So as it relates to our slate for presidents, personally, if someone could grab a hold of Bernie Sanders and really work with him on the details of the things that he wants to do and how to do that financially, really undoing the war on drugs and the money that we spend and lose and miss because of prohibition, I personally think there would be plenty of money for him to do some of the things we we can have health care for everybody if we do it right. Now, you notice how I talked about that, but I didn't say I'll vote for Bernie Sanders? Just saying.
<laughs> Let me wrap it up with this here. This is what I what I want from you guys. I'm gonna get out of this real quick and just go right to that slide. Um, This is just, for the time keeper, this will just take a quick second. So, where are we? Where are we? We're still arresting 500 to 600,000 people every year for marijuana in this country. So what we're doing here, it ain't over, folks. Not even for weed, it's not over. States are attempting to sue other states for we want to cross state lines. Law enforcement is beginning to miss their cannabis-related benefits, such as civil asset forfeit and some of the other things involving searches from being able to smell marijuana in someone's car. The, U the UN treaties that I mentioned earlier, this year in New York in April, UNGAS, and that's not like a, uh, anyway. Acid relief commercial, or something like that. That's a UN General Assembly special session on the drug. So if you can get to New York, look that up, and you should be there, and I'll show you how you can do that. Opiate crisis is causing a firestorm. They want to charge drug sellers and suppliers with murder. Some folks are putting forth legislation to do this. Wrong. An attempt to blame cannabis legalization for our opiate crisis is also being attempted. So folks, we just go through this, this is what we need. How do you fit in? Be responsible with your personal use and your business that you're gonna get into. Advocate for sound medical practices, research and development. You wanna do this in a very professional way. Identify and work with legislators in a respectable manner. Don't be adversarial with them and involve yourself in the entire war on drugs movement to end it, to end it all. You can't stop with cannabis. And those are some of the organizations that you can get with, LEAP, DPA, Students for Sensible Drug Policy, Moms United, Clergy for New Drug Policy, etc. I want to thank you very much. We're going to have a whole day to talk to you about you can listen to the Fusebox radio broadcast via iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Podcast Attic, and your other favorite podcast players. Check out the Fusebox Radio's official website for our latest episodes, events, and more at FuseboxRadioOnline.com. You can also visit us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Fusebox Radio Show, Twitter at Twitter.com slash Fusebox Radio, and Instagram at Instagram.com slash Fusebox Radio. Feel free to contact us at FuseboxRadio at gmail.com to submit music for airplay consideration, 